Hello, Clear Skies Ahead listeners. This is Kelly Savoy, and I'm hoping you can take a moment of your time to rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We have produced over 60 episodes, and you can help us reach even more individuals that will benefit from the diverse experiences shared by our guests. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this new episode. Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Matt Mull, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Alec Kanaki, a meteorologist with the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy. Welcome, Alec, and thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Alec, could you tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in science and how it influenced your educational path? Um, yeah, so I can't really pinpoint per se um, what really sparked my interest in science uh, initially, because I've always been interested in science for as long as I can remember, um, whether it's obviously weather or just kind of like the physical sciences, earth science. I always loved in uh, grade school and middle school through high school, like the earth science classes and the physical sciences. And then probably it's the, the typical tale for meteorologists that we get the interest in weather at a very young age. So uh, I always remember leaving the dinner table when the news was on, uh, when the weather cast came on. Uh, my parents always said that I was going to be a meteorologist one way or another. So um, that kind of really steered my path to become a meteorologist. And also um, just living in Michigan, we are pretty um, gracious to have a lot of weather that happen here. Basically everything but hurricanes, especially <laughs> uh, with lake effect snow and just everything be affected by the lakes around here. Um, so um, both sets of my grandparents, they lived off of uh, Lake Huron, one up in the Upper Peninsula and one in the, uh, the Thumb region of Michigan. So I always used to love going up there, obviously to visit the grandparents, um, but to see um, storms come off of the lake and just seeing these beautiful shelf clouds. So that really sparked my interest at a young age to see those kind of weather phenomena occur and just be like, how does that happen? Like, I really want get to get to, into the weeds about how that, uh, that kind of stuff occurs. So like I said, just from a young age, it really sparked my interest. Um, so I always wanted to be a meteorologist, um, but I also wanted to stay in Michigan. So it's kind of a into a smaller field and putting into a smaller cabinet of just having a very somewhat specific uh, career path of uh, being a meteorologist and staying in Michigan. Um, so educational wise, that kind of steered me to Central Michigan University where my degree is from. Um, so for meteorology's sake, Central Michigan University is the only uh, university in the state that has an undergrad in meteorology. So I believe Michigan University of Michigan has a uh, master's program or at least a certificate. And I think the uh, Northern Michigan University in the UP, uh, they have some certificates, but for just undergrad in meteorology, it's Central Michigan University. So uh, that kind of obviously steered my path to go there. Um, so yeah, it's from what kind of really sparked my interest in that. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's amazing how few schools actually have specific degrees in meteorology or atmospheric sciences. You know, a lot of them will have um, geosciences, geography, earth science, but, uh, well, at, at least there was one, right? One's, one's better <laughs> yeah. than none in Michigan. Exactly. And I didn't really know that until my, my freshman year when my professor for my intro class so I said, hell yeah, this is the only uh, school in the state that has meteorology. I was like, oh, I 
I didn't really know that. <laughs> I just chose CMU because I saw meteorology. So. so what opportunities did you pursue inside and outside of school that you thought would be beneficial to securing a, a job in the profession? Yeah, so um, like I just mentioned, my intro class, they had a, obviously the intro to meteorology class. And with the same professor, it was a smaller, uh, shorter one-credit class called professional development. Um, so basically, we took that freshman and sophomore year, and it basically just uh, exposed us to opportunities uh, like internships, um, networking opportunities to get into where we are now with uh, our career. So my professor, he really hammered on um, networking, uh, talk to the people in the field, like reach out, um, email, all that kind of stuff. So I really took it to heart. Um, and I'm more of an introvert. So at first, I thought that would kind of be uh, an issue. But I was like, no, I really want to go into meteorology. I really want this this career path. So I kind of initially forced myself to uh, email these people and just kind of reach out. And it usually, it eventually just came, became natural for me, um, just kind of reaching out and uh, networking. But other opportunities inside um, schooling, um, I was a part of a field campaign called CMU Storm, where one of my professors, he was granted a uh, mobile mesonet. Um, so that was kind of cool just to look at the, the different weather instruments affixed to uh, this uh, Ford Explorer, I believe it was. Um, with the, and had the, uh, the, the monitor, like three or four monitors within the mesonet as well. So, uh, really just a mo- mobile weather car, <laughs> essentially. So we're, we're basically looking at lake breeze fronts coming off of Lake Michigan. It's about a two, two and a half week campaign. Um, and that was just really cool. Um, that was my sophomore or junior year of schooling. Just really kind of seeing all these theories and equations that I learned in the classroom coming into real life, seeing all these uh, lake breeze fronts and uh, applying all the knowledge I learned in the classroom. Um, that was just really cool and interesting to, uh, to be a part of. Um, I bring that up because it kind of steered to where I am now because at that point in my college career, I was really thinking about going into research. And after that, although it was like I said, really, really cool to be a part of. I was kind of like, eh, this, this research meteorology stuff isn't really for me per se. Um, I think it's awesome and really cool, but I just kind of was uh, just more so th- wanting to find a different path. So that just kind of like checked that box off saying, okay, I tried that, not for me, um, but that really opened the door for air quality meteorology where I am now. Um, and after that, I really dove deep really into that. Um, and then some other things um, within the school was this, the, the student chapter of the um, American Meteorological Society that I believe every um, meteorology school has. Um, basically, I usually describe it, um, and me and my friends describe it as weather nerd club. <laughs> we just get together once a week for an hour and just talk. We have uh, different events that we put on. And it really helped, too, because we have, uh, or we had, and they still have um, guests come on and speak at some of the meetings, whether it's alumni or just uh, professors in the field, just to talk about, just talk what they do, what they're doing for their job, and just exposing these students to uh, just opportunities in the workforce, which I think is great. And also, akin to that. Um, my other professor, he usually puts on a career day, um, usually in October every year, where he has alumni from Central Michigan come in um, from broadcasting, the NWS, uh, the private sector, the government. And um, my freshman year, my now coworker, she came and uh, spoke. So that was one of my first exposures to uh, air quality meteorology. So that was just kind of cool, just the path from freshman in college now working along with her. So it's kind of it was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the meteorology department was really great at your university. I wish I had like a one-credit <laughs> one professional development course when I was yeah. in school. Um, it sounds like between that and the local chapter and just the professors really trying to get um, the students knowing more about all the different fields, that's, that's great. 
Yeah, it really helped too because uh, the class size um, at CMU was um, pretty small. It ranges between 15 to 20 students per class. Um, so that just really helps students and professors build that relationship. So the professors can really be like, hey, like, what do you want to go into? And they can kind of uh, steer some of the classroom um, material to what the majority of people want to go into. And they can have this, they, they always had an open door policy and you can just go in there, ask questions. And they're re- very open to um, that kind of professional development. Yeah. And it's like, you almost have a, your own personal advisor since the, yeah, exactly. you know, the, the classes are so small. So you had mentioned that it helped you decide, you know, what you wanted to do um, for a career. So is the position you're at now the first job you had in the field or did you work somewhere else prior to that? Yep. This is my first job in the meteorology field. Um, I got pretty lucky and I'm very appreciative um, of what happened. So um, we could talk about it a little bit more because I think that's um, one of the questions that we were, were going to discuss. But um, my senior year um, in the fall, I reached out to my now boss um, just because, like, like I mentioned earlier, I always just found try to find people to uh, email and just talk about their current jobs. So I reached out to my boss and just asked about this position and he um, forwarded it to my now coworker. And we just, we networked and discussed for a couple months. And then um, she told me, oh, hey, there might be an opening in the coming year or so or coming months. So just keep an eye out. And so this job opening opened in February of 2021. So I uh, instantly applied. My interview was in March and I heard end of April that I was the one chosen. And so they couldn't technically offer me the job because I wasn't graduated yet because I graduated in May of 21. Um, so once I got my final transcript sent to my boss and he said, okay, you're official. You got the, you got the offer. So wow. like I said, I was very gracious for it to happen very soon because I have friends I heard, I've always heard about people in the field or just in any um, field that uh, the, the stress of your last semester in college, like, okay, where's my job going to come? Where's the job offer at? And I was just, like I said, I got a little lucky, and I'm very gracious for it. Right. You're, so. you're thinking, how am I going to pay my, my school loans? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but that's that's awesome that you just, you know, that's all it took was just reaching out to someone and having, you know, a, a, a just informal chat. And you, mm-hmm. you, you just, she remembered you. And yeah. um, that's that's the way to go, for sure. So can you walk us through what's a typical day, if there is a typical day, as a meteorologist with the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy? What does that day look like? Yeah, so um, I would say that there's a pretty much broad overview of a typical day, but each day is pretty much different, obviously, depending on there's meetings, there's a, a kind of a, a project going at the time. Um, but basically, the bare bones of what I do is... Um, there were three meteorologists within this department, me and my two coworkers, and we do rotating weeks of uh, forecasting ozone and PM25 throughout um, the state of Michigan. And so when it's my week, um, we usually do every Monday, uh, we, we forecast for either the upcoming days or out to a week. It's pretty season dependent. Um, in the summertime, we usually do um, every two days or every three days for forecasting because that's when ozone is high. Um, but in the wintertime, it's usually PM25 is the driving pollutant, and that can just be out for the week. So 
First off, when it's um, my Monday to forecast, it's usually the entire morning I forecast. And I usually just look at the uh, your classic weather models, um, weather forecasts, just because ozone and PM2.5 are very um, dependent upon the uh, the weather patterns and the uh, what uh, what have you with what's going on in the weather. Um, so after that, um, I look at the air quality models. Um, there's there's quite a few. I know NOAA and NWS, they have an air quality model. Um, there's some other uh, models that um, have an air quality um, filter to it. Just to get like a basic idea of what other models are, are thinking based on uh, what we have while looking at the weather forecasts. So just by understanding the fronts and boundaries where they are, um, just really helps us forecast. So like I said, that's basically Monday morning. Um, and every day after that, um, after we send out our forecast, I'll check it every Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on for the rest of the week. And when it's not my week, I also like looking at the forecast, um, just cause I'm a meteorologist. I'm a weather nerd, so I like looking at that stuff. And also, just in case uh, my other coworkers they need a, a second pair of eyes um, or an uh, other idea of what to think with the uh, the forecast for that week. Um, and like I said too, time can vary with the forecast, um, especially in the summer. If it's a high ozone day, we have uh, what we call air quality alerts or clean air action days. So that's where we um, we call the local NWS offices, and they put out alerts through the NWS saying, hey, this is an air quality alert um, called by the uh, our department. So that takes a little bit more time. There's a little bit more uh, documentation to go through that, different write-ups to do. Um, so that's basically the the forecasting side of it. Um, obviously, I can go way more in depth, but <laughs> won't go that far yet. Um, and then the basically probably the other 50% of my job is performing air quality modeling using the gold standard air mod model, which is the gold standard model by uh, agreed upon by EPA and the American Meteorological Society. Um, so I can go through the little the application process a little bit. So basically, if a facility or a, a company within Michigan, they need to pull an air permit for if they're building a new uh, an addition to their facility, if they're making a, a change to what their process is, if they're making any change or edit that will cause air emissions to increase, they need to pull an air permit, and that goes through our permit engineering staff. And then they, they do their own like little separate um, calculations and everything. But if it warrants modeling, it comes to us. Um, and there's two ways to do modeling. With the bigger facilities, they usually hire a consultant to do the modeling, and then they send us their modeling files and their modeling write-up, and we basically just QAQC. Um, but the more smaller facilities um, that don't want to spend the money on a consultant, they usually just send us their parameters of what they're doing, and we build the facility within the model. So the first kind of leg to that, where we get the, uh, the, the input files, um, so, like I said, the consultant sends us their input files and uh, their modeling write-up, which basically is just explaining what they did, how they did it, and why they did it, um, just so we can like follow their uh, reasoning and their input files. So we take those files, import it to, in, into AirMod, and it's a pretty step-by-step process. It's pretty user-friendly with how it is set up in the model. Um, you look at the, the pollutant pathway, what pollutant you're modeling for, um, the averaging time. That can be one hour, eight hour, 24 hours, or annual for an averaging time. Um, then you go to, or you have the stack parameters, the building parameters, um, how tall the, the, the stack is where the pollutant is coming out, and then the emission rate. And there's a couple other different parameters that um, we had to look at. And then we go to the receptor grid. Now, receptors are essentially pseudo-monitors. So those tell us within the model what that pollutant is at that specific point. So... 
that's basically the, the entire brunt of the model is basically getting what the impacts are for that pollutant for what the facility is uh, producing or processing. Sounds really um, involved. Yeah, <laughs> Lots it of sounds steps. really involved. Yeah, exactly. But like I said, within the model, it's pretty user friendly. So it's pretty easy to follow. Just go step by step by step. Um, then after that, um, you go, you just import the meteorological files. And we have, I forgot the number, but numerous upon numerous of meteorological stations throughout the state that we get data from. Um, so wherever the facility is, we, we choose the closest or the, uh, the more like station that uh, would give us the most accurate data. And then basically just QAQC, make sure everything's up to code, everything's good to go, and you just hit run. Um, then that's basically that way. And the other way is basically the exact same, but you just build a model within Aramod or build a facility within the model, rather. And I always prefer like that that one more because it's just more fun for me just to build the facility within the model, like drag and drop these buildings, and you can export it to Google Earth and make sure it's all pinpointed correctly. So just just really cool process, so. And I'm assuming that, um, you know, any company, it, it's a requirement that they have to go through the state to, to get yeah. the get these things approved and yeah exactly yeah. All that good and stuff. like I said it goes to the, the permitting staff they they have a whole separate part of the job that they they really handle that um, I don't really understand <laughs> so then if it comes to us then yeah it, it's it's a whole separate process so and is there also I don't know if your group does it but do they do water quality too or is it just air quality like that's yeah so we're, yeah we're I'm just within the air quality division um Eagle does have a water resource division. So um, actually one of my coworkers, her, um, her husband works for it. So we kind of get like what they're working on, like information from her. But, uh, but yeah, we have a water resource um, slash water quality division as well with an Eagle. Nice. So with all the, the stuff that's going on, what do you like most about the job? Yeah, so um, obviously the weather portion I love just because, like I said, I'm a certified weather nerd. Um, but also the air quality side too, um, because... I believe, at least for me, um, the air quality, air quality meteorology is still somewhat in, in its infancy, I'd say, because for the longest time and for the longest time I can remember, I didn't really hear that much about air quality from a meteorology standpoint until my sophomore, junior year at Central. Um, and even now I'm seeing more air quality forecasts on like your local news channel. Um, a lot of the, the broadcast meteorologists, um, in Michigan, I know and I went to class with and I'm seeing them forecast air quality, especially in the summertime. So like I said, it's kind of a, a kind of a growing field in terms of getting the public um, knowledge out about it. So I like that a lot, just being able to forecast and make sure the air quality within Michigan is uh, obviously up to par and good, having good quality. Um, and also just the camaraderie with my job. Um, I've always heard for the longest time, like make sure your work environment is good and it's enjoyable and make sure your, what's the saying is, uh, make sure your vocation is a vacation <laughs> kind of thing. So, um, just, I couldn't ask for a better boss, uh, better coworkers. Um, and if they're listening to this, I'm not sucking up. I, genu <laughs> I, gen I genuinely mean oh, that. Oh, maybe just a little. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe just a little, <laughs> but yeah, I've, I love my job, uh, like everything about it, and my coworkers add a lot more to it. I'm uh, just having, being able to go over to their cubicle or call them on Microsoft Teams and just say, hey, how's your day going kind of thing, just that camaraderie, like I said. It's great. And so what are, those are some wonderful things about the job. What are some of the challenges that you face? 
like you said, uh, with the modeling standpoint, it's kind of, it can get more involved and just, it seems like a lot of stuff involved with it. Um, like I said, there is, but it's kind of, uh, the, the interface is pretty user-friendly, but um, there are some modeling applications that can be pretty difficult. Um, not everyone is cookie cutter, so each one is different. Um, I, although there could be some applications that are pretty similar, just kind of like plug and play, but um, f- um, for the majority, it's pretty, uh, it can get pretty difficult. Um, and for example, I have one application for three asphalt plant, three portable asphalt plants up in the uh, Upper Peninsula. And initially, I was like, okay, this can be a home run, just pretty easy. Um, they're all pretty similar. Um, just the the location of them, of them are different. And then I got dove more into it. I did the first round of modeling, and just nothing was working. Nothing passed uh, to the EPA standards. So me and the permit engineer and the consultant were looking at it, and we're like, "What is going on?" And so then it turned into, like I said, three different asphalt plants, and we ran it for five separate years. And I believe there were five separate pollutants. So I'm not going to do that math, but that's just a lot of modeling runs we had to set up, and half of them were not working. Um, for the majority of them, my meteorological file just disappeared. Oh, so, like I said, a lot of can of worms can happen. So, um, that's kind of more like the biggest challenges. But I also find that kind of fun. Like, uh, I kind of see modeling as like a jigsaw puzzle, just putting stuff together and making sure it, it's working correctly and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, and I guess another challenge that I also kind of find fun is uh, forecasting ozone. Like I said, in the summertime, it can get pretty uh, pretty high, especially with Lake Michigan and all that, uh, the little pollutants in the the industry in that area with Chicago and Gary, Indiana, and the uh, the portions in Michigan. Um, there are some days where it can be a home run uh, with ozone with the... Uh, so for high ozone days, I can explain that a little bit. You need um, clear skies, um, surface temperatures ranging around 85 plus degrees. You, know, you need dew point um, right around... 65 degrees Fahrenheit to 70. Um, and for Michigan's sake, a southwest wind will blow all that, all those pollutants and ozone into the Lake Michigan, um, west southwest Michigan area. And typically when we see those days, um, you would just think, okay, yeah, let's call air quality alert. This is going to happen. But on some cases, we saw this uh, two summers ago, my first summer when we had a pretty high wildfire content that enough of the PM25 from the wildfires got up into the upper atmosphere that it caused somewhat of a a pseudo cloud that blocked the sunlight just enough to where it didn't initiate the ozone chemical reaction to occur. And so a couple of times, me and my coworkers were just pulling our hair out, like, wait, we this is a busted forecast. Like, what happened here? We're like, oh, wait, like, there's too much PM25. So that's an added thing to the the forecasting um, realm that we need to pay attention to is, okay, how much PM25 is too much? Um, And also there can be uh, a catch-22 of if there is enough PM25, not too much, it can actually initiate more ozone. So that could, that's one of the challenges that uh, I also kind of find fun is because like you're learning as you go kind of thing. Um, obviously we have this, the, the background for forecasting and all the, the chemical background, but um, just kind of like that kind of stuff for learning as you go. So do you do any forecasting for um, post uh, fireworks displays? I've seen past couple of years, I think Houston and I might get the year wrong. I think it was 2019. Um, after these large city firework displays, air quality alerts are going out if there's a temperature inversion. And um, is any of that happening in, in your area or have, uh, have you been seeing that? So basically, right, yeah, around like 4th of July, um, we always put out, um, I was like, we put out alerts because we just basically say like the quality is going to be 
not up to par because just all like the fireworks smoke in the air, especially around uh, the Metro Detroit area here in Michigan. So whoever's forecasting that week, whenever we send out our weekly write-up for forecast, we always make sure to put in there like expect um, higher levels of PM25, potentially higher levels of ozone just because of the, the just the pollutants in the air from the weekend or a couple of days that 4th of July occurs. So so how how dangerous is it? Is it is it more dangerous for people who say have asthma or you know uh, other type of breathing issues, or is it really bad for you know when when the, the ozone and um, the air quality is really terrible? Is that even if you're healthy, should you just try, try to stay inside on those days? Yeah, I mean, I guess like the the overall is like if you can stay inside, stay inside. So for the the categories for ozone. Um, and PM25, it's it's good, moderate, um, unhealthy for sensitive groups, unhealthy, very unhealthy, and then hazardous. So we call air quality alerts for ozone when the category gets to the USG or the unhealthy for sensitive groups. And that's what you said if with people with uh, asthma and respiratory illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where we say uh, – um, don't if you if you can don't mow your lawn this day to to produce more ozone or maybe fill up your gas tank the, the next day just to, just to help out the overall environment and air quality um, and then the higher you get up in that list and the more it brings in everyone saying hey okay just just the air quality is pretty bad not right now um, so just stay inside if you can um, but at least in my two-ish years I've been, or year and a half, two years I've been here, um, and for what I've heard from my coworkers, um, we really only have seen. Um, for eight-hour average for ozone, which is what we uh, forecast for, uh, we've really only seen the USG average. We've had some hourly values in the unhealthy or very unhealthy range, but it, uh, they decrease pretty quickly. So yeah, well, I, I mean, it it could be it could have a big impact on public health. So, do you think the way that you forecast is, you know, um, the tools you have are, are good enough, or do you think that there's going to be a change in in the future to make that? Even better. Yeah, so I think they're they're good right now. They help us a lot. Um, it's more so just knowing your stuff and knowing the uh, the region that you're in for forecasting ozone. Like I said, the uh, the Lake Michigan, the the west slash southwest state of Michigan area. You really need to know like your stuff to like forecast in that area, especially with a a west or southwest wind. Um, but with air quality meteorology forecasting, it's pretty similar to the meteorology field as a whole. Um, it's very data-based. So with increased data and increased modeling, just those forecast models for ozone and PM25 are only going to increase, I believe, um, just with like any uh, typical uh, weather meteorological uh, model. Um, so with those increasing, though, I feel like that will increase the quality of the forecast that we're able to put out just because uh, whether it's better resolution, better grid, grid spacing, um, just better understanding, better uh, equations or calculations within those models. Um, I think, yeah, that will inev- inevitably help the the forecasting on our on our standpoint. So you're also a weather forecaster and uh, scientific writer for Global Weather and Climate Center. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, how you use your communication skills to bridge that gap between the scientific community and the general public? Yeah. So um. As along with other scientific fields, the meteorology field has a lot of nomenclature and terms and terminology that are just like, what does that even mean? <laughs> um, like, like in the medical field, there's a lot of stuff that I don't even understand or can't even start to understand. So just, I feel like by explaining things in a way, um, 
to simplify like the terms and terminology that people can understand is really beneficial for the field as a whole and just the general public just to understand um, what we're trying to convey and explain. Because um, obviously, I, I love weather. I want people to, under to understand weather so they can love it more. Um, and just so we're able to understand the weather um, more, I feel like would help the general public. Um, so... Like you just said, I, I write for the Global Weather and Climate Center. So just being able, I, I've always had a knack for writing. Um, just because I, ever since I can remember, I've always just loved writing. Um, I, I don't know where it comes from, <laughs> but so uh, what we do with, we just write little articles, um, just based on any kind of weather subject. So recently I've just been writing more so air quality. And like I said, with our forecasts for my current job, we had to write, um, forecast, uh, discussions. So with those, I obviously write the, um, what is expected, um, what we're thinking the forecast is going to be for the week or the coming days. Um, but I also try to put in like a little, like the chemistry behind what's going on with the ozone or PM25 or maybe a little uh, like meteorology blurb or terminology just to like kind of give the exposure to the general public of like, this is what like opening the door to the, the field, like this is what we're thinking. And like, this is kind of like what other things are within the field rather than just, oh, it's going to be 85 degrees and sunny today. So just being able to expose um, people to that, um, I think will benefit everyone overall. So, so it sounds like you did all the right things to get a job right out of school. So what advice do you have for students or early career professionals looking to establish a career in your field? Were there certain courses that you took that you think were really valuable or any professional development opportunities or just any advice you could offer? Yeah, so um, like I mentioned earlier, um, networking, I would say is very, very important. Just be just exposing yourself to the different professionals in the field and just basically getting your name out there. Um, that was very important. Um, like I mentioned earlier too, um, like my, one of my professors, he has a career day every semester for uh, at CMU. So just being able to get exposed to that um, and getting people's email and their their business card is reaching out, I'd say is very beneficial. And is I'd say is on top of my list for giving uh, recommendations. Um, and then some other things, at least in my field, and I, it's a growing field overall, I'd say within meteorology is uh, taking GIS courses. Um, that's, a, that's a big, it's a big booming field, I'd say, is being able to be proficient and just being able to work with uh, GIS would uh, benefit people, I feel like, a lot. Um, obviously, within my field, um, weather forecasting, being able to understand uh, the regional aspect of what you're forecasting for, and just also, obviously, within air quality, just basic air quality knowledge and being able to and wanting to learn more about the overall air quality and also um, learning more about air quality models, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, you got, you got lucky getting a job in an area where you grew up. So, yeah. you know, that definitely helped. You knew a lot about the weather and things that were going on. It wasn't, yeah, a, like it, it wasn't a big learning curve. Yeah. I, like I said, just growing up here with, like, like I said, we get, we experience, we can't experience every weather phenomenon with the exception of hurricanes. So just growing up in that environment really helped. So. Well, we're so grateful for everything you told us about your career. However, before you go, we always ask our guests one last fun question uh, at the end of our show. So what is your favorite band? 
Yeah. So right now I'd say I go around every couple months or couple years, switching between my favorite band or favorite artist. But right now I'd say my favorite band is uh, Greta Van Fleet. Ooh, I like they that. They are a, oh, do you? Yes. Okay. I was, I was hoping one of you, one of you two, uh, knew who they were. Um, but yeah, they're actually me and my wife, we went to their hometown, um, just yesterday. They're from Frankenmuth, Michigan. And so we went there and just, um, it's a, it's a pretty, big Christmassy kind of area. So we went there and just hung out and just enjoyed went shopping. So yeah, I'd say they're my favorite band. So do you feel like they have like a Led Zeppelin sound? I really like mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin and that's why I like Greta Van Fleet because I'm like, oh, cool. Finally, a real <laughs> yeah. rock band that sounds like the 70s groups that were awesome. Do you do you feel the same way about it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hear a lot of similarity between... Uh, uh, Greta Van Fleet and uh, Robert Plant, yeah. just their, their their voice and the uh, um like their sound. I hear a I hear a lot of similarities, which I know a lot of people um they kind of take the negative aspect of it, but like no, it's it's good music overall. Like this this enjoy the music. Yeah. So yeah, I like I enjoy them a lot. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Alec, and sharing your work experiences with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is edited by Peter Trebke. Technical direction is provided by Peter Killalay. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Matt Mall and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www ametsoc.org forward slash clear skies and you can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or would like to become a future guest 